0: Today we're going to travel through the centuries, visiting the realms of alchemical pursuit and coded text, something that strikes just the most magnificently curious note. We're going to take a look inside the wild past of the Voynich manuscript. We're going to start with what the manuscript is on the surface. Next, we'll look into the life of the antiquarian bookseller of the early 20th century, Wilfred Voynich, who turned the remainder of his life into the pursuit of finding the truth behind the manuscript as well as the many scholarly hands the book has traveled through from the 13th century to now. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today in the Rainy Book Nook podcast. I am so sorry about stretching out the episode release time, but I think this was worth it, and I know that you guys agree, or at least that you support the decision. Um... The last episode was supposed to be about the backrooms, and I've always really enjoyed watching YouTube videos that people make about the backrooms, um, but I found that I was forcing myself through the research at times, it was really strange, I just wasn't that invested in it, I wasn't very interested in it for some reason, like I said, I really like the videos, but reading all of the lore and a lot of it was very conflicting with each other, and. I just, I think maybe that was not my ideal research topic, which is okay. This is a learning process, right? Maybe another time. I kept that recording, and I might revisit it, but probably not. So I chose a topic that has intrigued me for quite some time, and honestly, I think that this was my favorite topic that I've done so far, so I'm excited for you guys to hear about it, but... Um, Talking about books for a second. Since the last episode, I started and finished an incredible book by Nick Cutter called *The Troop*. And it's about a group of boys who go on this trip with their scoutmaster, and they are on. They go to an island. They get dropped off there uh, with a boat, so already they have no form of escape if something happens. Which they do this every year, so they anticipate it to go fine. But something happens, and a like, bioengineered experiment gone wrong escapes from containment and finds its way to the island. And um some of the most visceral reactions I have ever had while reading a book came from that book. So five out of five stars for sure. I think I read it in, like, under two weeks, Um which I know for some of you that's probably chump change but I haven't done that in a really long time where I just crush a book like that um I just don't spend as much time reading as I used to and so you know I I think that's changing now that I've sort of started to make that more of a habit again but um after I finished reading that I started reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas I got that book like a year ago and it's been sitting on my shelf obviously it's a classic but I have never seen the movie or read the book I know I know but I'm getting there Um, so on that note as well if you guys don't use Goodreads you totally should Um, it's a website and an app and it's um, you can like mark all of the books that you've read and you can rate them you can also keep track of books that you're actively reading um, and or you know building a list of books that you want to read so I you know I don't keep all of the physical copies of my books and I've given a ton away over the years. So it's nice to have that because I can kind of go back and recall the books that I have read. But um, I also get to feed that feral reward goblin in my brain by tracking the percentage of the book I've read each day. It is good for the goblin. I honestly think that it also keeps me motivated to read more sadly, but you know, a win is a win. All right, enough rambling. Let's talk about a book that has stumped even the world's most successful codebreakers. So what is the Voynich manuscript? The most simple definition is that it is a roughly 225 page book made up of four to six sections. I say four to six because it varies depending on the source that you're reading, um, and I think that's just because of the fact that nobody knows what any of the text says in the book, so the sections aren't necessarily clearly defined. The sections have been broken up as such due to the contents of the drawings in each each section, though. Um, being distinct and clearly different from one another. Honestly, the drawings don't help decipher anything, but without them there would be absolutely no way to figure out even the slightest idea of the nature of the manuscript, so I guess they do contribute that. Um, The text from an ultimately unknown language looks like Elvish script, with letters almost resembling something from a language with European origins, Um, but have the same like suede letters and swift strokes that you might see in Lord of the Rings. It's pretty awesome. Throughout the text, 25 separate letters or characters are found, and while some have what seems to be a capital version of them, many don't. And as far as those who have studied the manuscript can tell, it seems like there are little to no repeated grammatical patterns, or sorry, Um, repeated known grammatical patterns in the manuscript, which is why it's been impossible to crack. So scientists have tried to compare the text around two separate but similar photos, um, hoping to see if any of the same words appear that would allow them to then kind of go from there and break it down. That did not work. Uh, Some letters are only found at the beginning of words, some letters are only found at the end, and it seems that some also only show up in the middle. Another strange thing noticed in the text is the appearance of a letter two to three times in a row on multiple occasions. Um, I don't know if I'm just not grasping that, but that definitely happens in our language as well. I, The word follow has two L's in the middle. So if someone smarter than me can explain that, that would be great. I guess I just, yeah, I don't understand what's strange about that. One thing about the text in the manuscript that uh, conflicts with it being from a European background is the concept of letters that exist only at the beginning and end of a word and can never be found in the middle. Through some analysis using the manuscript's text, it lines up more with the character distribution and patterns of the Romanized text of Chinese, Mandarin Chinese Pinyin um, than several of the other proposed language origins like Hebrew or Arabic. The first section of the book is um, also the largest. It, takes up about half of the book it's the herbal section and it has pictures of plants we think each page contains one to two pictures of plants and presumably the associated text is about these plants language aside one of the peculiar things about this section is that some of the plants are able to be identified to plants that are recognizable but some despite being studied by a vast amount of scholars and codebreakers, remain a complete mystery. Um, So one point made in a video that I watched was that it's possible that these drawings were done with like an artistic intention, uh, in the sense that they didn't draw the plants maybe to be recognized by their natural form, but rather drew them in a way that accentuated their medicinal um, benefits or whatever that they were trying to accentuate. In that um, drawing. So as you'll see the general consensus is that this book was written as an alchemical or a medical text. The pages are called folios and instead of being made on paper it is made on parchment crafted from animal skin. Um, The pages are numbered but not individually. Each page is folded into a bifolio and instead of every page being numbered in this manuscript every other page is numbered. That being said the book contains over 200 pages but the top number is 116. So due to the evidence of the numbering system it is common knowledge that about 14 of the folios are missing. After the herbal section come the astronomical as well as cosmological sections. In these two sections, you can find several zodiac drawings and several constellation drawings that are recognizable, but there are also a number of constellations that don't line up with the perspective we actually have from Earth and some unknown stars that we, you know, we're not able to say, yeah, that is a star that exists in our universe. Astrological signs we recognize and use today are found in these sections, although the location of these constellations aren't all spot on. And, you know, before you think that this is written by people that live under the surface of Mars or something, let's remember that this book is old, and the people that wrote it, although clearly possessing some level of skill and education, were not modern humans. The following section of the book after that is balneological section, balneology being defined as the study of therapeutic bathing and medicinal springs. In this section, there's a lot of drawings of naked bodies, baths, and the like. Pictures of women bathing together are shown, gathered together in baths that are regularly described as looking like they are meant to symbolize ovaries and fallopian tubes, which is why part of the theory about the book was that it was about women's health. Um, That theory actually was popularized for quite some time and then was dismissed. The final two sections are described as the pharmaceutical section and the recipe section. The pharmaceutical section is given that name due to containing a lot of pictures of apothecary-style bottles and what seems to be medical recommendations of specific amounts of herbs and other things. In the recipe section, there are no pictures, but it is notated with stars where the entries in that section begin and end. I honestly feel like, without knowing the contents of the book, though, how do we really know that? That that's what that means, or that those are even recipes? But, if it is an alchemical or medical text, I suppose it would totally track for those to be recipes. So who was Wilfred Voynick, and what hands did the book travel through that we know of? The known history of possession of the manuscript is as follows. What was presumably done to maintain, like, an air of mystery around how he obtained the manuscript, Wilfred's own tales of how he came to discover the manuscript was a ruse. He claimed to have discovered it in a castle in Austria inside a locked chest that the owners of the castle had no knowledge of. It wasn't until after his death that his wife Ethel would give up the true origin, which was that it came from a Jesuit college in Italy. Based on a letter that was stuck to the inside of the manuscript, Here's what we know about the manuscript before Voynich had it. This letter, dated from 1665, was written by a scientist from Prague, Johannes Marcus Marzi. He claims Emperor Rudolf II bought the manuscript for 600 ducats about 60 to 70 years prior, and that he had heard elsewhere that the manuscript was a creation of none other than Dr. Mirabilis, which is Latin for wonderful teacher, or Roger Bacon, which is definitely not his original name, it's like Rogeris Baconius or something like that, but people call him Roger Bacon. Uh, he was alive in the 13th century in England and was skilled in many areas. He was a philosopher and educational reformist and was the first known European to document the recipe for gunpowder. And the more controversial part of his resume, alchemy. Bacon was also a Catholic friar and spent much of his life attempting to have religion and science meet in the middle. At the time, the study of alchemy was highly condemned by the Catholic Church. Uh, Sadly, a lot of things were condemned by the Catholic Church. Roger Bacon died in the late 13th century. Also in this letter... Martzi writes that he's not sure who sold the manuscript to the Emperor, but a researcher and a scholar named René Zandbergen says that after the Emperor, there were three other owners. The first owner after Emperor Rudolf was a man named Jakub Korczyski i I am sure that I did not say that right, but I really tried. Also Emperor Rudolf's personal doctor. His signature can be found on the manuscript's first page, but it wasn't something that anyone really knew about until 1914 when Voynich came into possession of it. He attempted to make the signature appear more clearly using chemical processes after he noticed, um, but would ultimately fail and it would take ultraviolet testing at a later date to fully reveal the signature. Tepence died in the year 1622, and the manuscript seems to disappear for a while until Georgius Bartius, another alchemist, became the next known owner in 1637. Bartius extracted his own copies of the manuscript and sent it to Enthasius Kircher, a man who lived in Rome and is what is called a polymath, someone who possesses an incredible expertise on a wide array of subjects. Surely this guy can do it, right? Kircher wrote back in 1639, saying he was unable to translate the text. Barsius, when he died, passed the manuscript on to Marzi around the year 1662, and a few years later in 1665, Marzi sent the manuscript again to Kircher, although I am unsure if he knew that Barshas had done the same thing. I I I don't really know about that part. I tried to figure that out and I couldn't. I wanted to get through the letter before mentioning this, but Emperor Rudolf was huge into the occult and alchemy and made the pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone his lifelong mission. He lived during a time where alchemy and science were, you know, one and the same. Uh, you may say, well, okay, well, why did the church condemn alchemy then if it was in line with mainstream science? Well, the church rejected mainstream science as well because it conflicted with their ideologies. We know this. Rudolph had a private alchemy lab and a massive collection of oddities. He um, also brought like famous alchemists into his court, one of them being the British alchemist Edward Kelly or Edward Talbot. Unfortunately, Kelly made claims he could not support, like being able to transmute metals into gold. And as a result, he was sent to prison by Rudolph, where he later died while trying to escape. Well, he died I think because of injuries that he sustained while trying to escape. Wilfred was born in 1865 into what was at the time still the Russian Empire. He was born into a wealthy noble family and was afforded a proper education that led him down the path of studying subjects like chemistry and pharmaceuticals. He later received a pharmacy license. Um, During the fall of the Tsars in Russia though Wilfred left and joined the proletariat and was subsequently arrested and sent to siberia he was there for three years before he was able to escape using a fake passport um through a series of unfortunate adventures uh including traveling through mongolia into china eventually into germany he would go as far as to sell some of his only possessions left which were like his glasses and his jacket for a spot on a ship to england Now, this was with intention. Wilfred was going there to reunite with a fellow political activist, and he continued his activism lifestyle for a few years until his friend passed away, and that, combined with the pressure of needing money that he wasn't getting from political activism, drove him to putting down that lifestyle, and him and his partner Ethel would begin actual careers. This would be when Wilfred opened an antiquarian bookshop in London and began his pursuit of rare and other special books. Wilfred came across the manuscript after finding it during a book sale at a Jesuit college in Italy, but it's a little more complex than that. This sale was being conducted by the Vatican Secret Archives, Uh, unbeknownst to their superiors. So there is a ton of mystery around how Wilfred even came to make this connection with the monastery, how he found out about the book, how he got to be a part of negotiations. Wilfred would never divulge any further explanation of the sale, and I mean, why would he tell everyone where he found this rare and potentially, you know, like, groundbreaking book? Then his golden goose is everyone else's as well. It apparently took almost a decade for the Jesuits to negotiate a deal with Voynich, and finally in 1912 was when he secured several books from the monastery. Many of them he would almost immediately turn around and sell, except for the manuscript, seemingly understanding that this was something truly unique. in almost everything i read it was referred to as the ugly duckling that's what he called it because it you know from the outside looks really bad he felt otherwise tiring of being in the middle of a war-torn country in 1914 wilfred and his wife ethel would move to new york city where wilfred opened another bookstore he apparently had the manuscript priced at a hundred thousand dollars which would be about three million dollars today needless to say he never sold it It remained in his possession until he died, um, at which point it just stayed with his wife Ethel until she also died. Now Anne Nill, uh, a trusted former friend, secretary, um, I know she was a secretary, I guess I don't know how close they were as friends, but she obviously was, you know, important to them because she was the inheritor of the manuscript. She flipped the manuscript Right away to a bookseller named Hans Peter Krauss a year later in 1961, so I guess it wasn't like right away, but it was right away for $24,500 with the condition that she also receive half of his sale on the manuscript should he make one. Um, he was also unable to sell it because he had it priced at $160,000. He didn't waste much time with it, though he had it for about eight years before he donated it to the Beinecke Rare Book Library at Yale University. What scientific analysis has been done on the text? Well, in 2009, samples of the pages of the manuscript were tested by the University of Arizona, and through radiocarbon dating, the samples consistently returned a range of dates from between the years 1410 and 1438. There is also evidence of the book being rebound at least once, and due to the insect holes on the first and last pages, scientists can also infer that the original cover was most likely made of wood, and was replaced after it was chewed through by insects. Text, as well as the outlines of drawings, are made from iron gall ink using a quill pen. Analysis was done on the pigment used on the drawings, and in the red pigment, scientists found the presence of quartz crystals, which evidently signifies the use of sand to dry inks and paint done uh, on medieval texts. Eniko Bazur suggests that there is no limit to what we can still do to narrow down the origins of the manuscript, mentioning that further analysis can and should be done to find out the geographical origins of that sand potentially indicating where the text was written. In 2014, a multi-spectrum analysis test was completed on the manuscript, and the scientists studying the data were able to confirm that the manuscript has never been rewritten, that essentially whoever wrote it made no mistakes or at least made no corrections. What text is there was there the first time, not erased or replaced by anything else. With such a large manuscript, how could there be no mistakes, right? Maybe they left them in, though. I mean, you know, we don't know what it says, so maybe they just chose not to cancel or rewrite anything out. That came out really weird. I, I meant, like, maybe they just chose not to erase anything and rewrite it so due to the varying handwriting styles and lack of obvious mistakes it is suspected that this book was transcribed from drafts that were then placed into this manuscript with painstaking care so as to leave a more visually perfect version you know maybe it's possible that this text exists in a rough draft form maybe it was destroyed who knows Another study, also done in 2014 at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, analyzed the frequency and relationship of the words found in the manuscript Using that data, compiled a 3D model of the language inside. When comparing the data to other models generated by other books, 90% of those books had a similar language model, basically proving that this is not gibberish like some have claimed. You know, for a very long time, a good amount of people were sure that the manuscript was a hoax put forth by Voynich, or if not by him, then that he was duped and that it was a forgery that he was tricked into buying. However, now, through the extensive scientific analysis that has been done on it, we can confidently say that it's not a hoax. It follows a common language model comparatively to other texts and is most certainly a 15th century document, this much we know. Some of the world's most famous and skilled cryptographers and code breakers have taken a crack at deciphering the Voynich manuscript, such as Alan Turing, the British computer scientist who cracked the Enigma code, Elizabeth and William Friedman, who were leaders in the first United States codebreaking unit, and many, many more have tried to translate the text and have been unsuccessful. So, let's talk about some of the theories then. While many authors have been speculated over the years, a lot of the scientific analysis of the book has ruled certain people out due to providing a timeline. For example, Roger Bacon died long before the text could have been created, so he was ruled out as a potential author. But a man named Giovanni Fontana is one that has not been entirely ruled out yet. He was born in the 1390s and died around the year 1455, so he was definitely alive between 1410 and 1438, the suspected age of the manuscript. Giovanni studied many things, was a physician and an engineer, and evidently also pursued cryptography as an interest. He has primarily been inserted into this theory because of the fact that he has two books of his own that were written in an encryption, albeit much simpler than the Voynich manuscript. He was active and alive during the time the manuscript was created, and because of his educational and career background, it's likely that he would have had knowledge about the contents of the book, you know, or on on what those subjects are. However, he is one of, you know, one among many people alive during this time that could meet all the same criteria, and there's not much more than that tying him to it. So Edward Kelly is also mentioned as a suspect in the forgery, that alchemist that got brought into Rudolph's court, some claiming that he forged the book as a means to swindle Emperor Rudolph into bringing him into his court and living in the lap of luxury. The main basis for this suspicion is that Kelly claimed to have a secret language in which he used to communicate with angels called Enochian. And uh, as a result of him, you know, being believed now to have manufactured that language, he was thrown into uh, the ring of suspicion for potentially also fooling Rudolph. However, Kelly was born, you know, in 1555, but it still would have required to him, him to obtain materials that were at the point of his birth already over 100 years old probably not. With what we know about the painstaking work that went into creating the manuscript and what is known about Kelly's life, which was that it was... I mean, look him up, because it's crazy. He was nomadic, extreme, known to kind of be like a hothead. I don't see him having the time nor the patience to pull that off. But as a side note, I could fall down a rabbit hole learning about each and every person I have mentioned today, like Roger Bacon. That dude so interesting. Um, So there have been several people suggested over the years, and some of them seem perfect, downright suspicious at times, but it's more likely that the author or authors are unknown. Like I said earlier, some analysis of the text has led researchers to believe that there could be multiple authors um, due to variations in handwriting style. One of the less explosive or exciting theories is that this is made up of a language that existed in a small medieval community that has since been eradicated, including all associated evidence of their culture and language origins. So that would be so incredibly strange for there to be nothing that exists in any other culture of the time that could tell us what's in it. So that's not really one I can commit to. But... Um, Because of what we can decipher using the images, this book is very likely either, like I said earlier, an alchemical manual from the 1400s or some sort of medical textbook. Um, It wasn't unheard of for other books of that era containing similar things to also be written in code to avoid detection from the church or other things like trade secrets being recorded in code so nobody could steal the information. There have been several people who claim to have cracked the code over time, but the truth is that this text has eluded history's most skilled code breakers, supercomputers, AI. Um, through all of the analysis, scientists and other researchers have ruled out many potentials, which does help narrow down the area of study, but the origins of the text and their contents remain unknown. In 2019, a claim was made that the code had been cracked, the claim coming from an associate researcher linked to the University of Bristol in the UK. The researcher states that he was able to decipher the code when he made the realization that it was a proto-romance language, which if this were true would mean he was the first and only person to find an example of a proto-romance language. If you speak Romanian, Spanish, French, Italian, or Portuguese, you speak one of the most spoken romance languages today. Yes, that's what I mean when I say romance. You know, in this sense, it's a regional word, not the kissy-kissy. Like West Germanic, Pluricentric, Turkic, etc., Anyways, this research claimed to have found the first example of a proto-romance language, meaning that it is the ancestral language of modern romance languages. This theory reeks of confirmation bias, and here is what Lisa Fagan Davis, the executive director of the Medieval Academy of America, has to say about that theory. As with most would-be Voynich interpreters, the logic of this proposal is circular and aspirational. He starts with a theory about what a particular series of glyphs might mean, usually because of the word's proximity to an image that he believes he can interpret. He then investigates any number of medieval Romance language dictionaries until he finds a word that seems to suit his theory. Then he argues that because he has found a Romance language word that fits his hypothesis, his hypothesis must be right. His translations, from what is essentially gibberish, an amalgam of multiple languages, are themselves aspirational rather than being actual translations. And End quote. Uh, what I could find about that theory doesn't convince me either. Like many of the other theories, I think there are a lot of things that vaguely match up, or match up enough that people are like, yep, that's gotta be it, I'm, I'm convinced. Some people reach heavily with their theories ranging from aliens to a young Leonardo da Vinci. Also side note the first time I wrote my notes I definitely typed Leonardo DiCaprio and I'm really glad that I caught that. (laughs) While it's very likely that the contents of the book aren't going to change the world once deciphered as it's most likely a medical or alchemical novel or text sorry and probably contains since disproved information if it is that. I think I speak for everyone when I say I do not care if it's about the most boring shit in the world or if it's nonsense and is really bad information. I just want to know what it is. Because. If it is a lost language, we could uncover something so incredible. We could discover a lost culture, a lost secret society. I think the possibilities are endless. Um, I choose to remain optimistic that it will open at least a few new doors once it's deciphered. What do you think it's about, though? Spotify listeners, I want you guys to put your answers down in the Q&A below the episode, or you can all message me your thoughts on Instagram. I do want to hear your thoughts because this one has my brain running in so many directions. Um, I personally hope that it is from a lost society. You know, so much of history has been lost, and it would be amazing to unearth something that is lost or something we've never even heard of before. Once again, I genuinely appreciate each and every one of you who listen. And if you haven't done this already, please leave a rating or a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help a lot. Um, I feel like this episode went by a lot quicker than I thought it would. I I felt like I spent so much time writing and researching it and I was just getting really into it. So I apologize that the length doesn't reflect... Um, what I thought it would I really I thought this was gonna be a super long episode I guess I don't really have a defined episode length that um I ever really shoot for I do try to shoot for like at least 30 minutes um but uh you know let me know I guess what you guys want if you want longer episodes or if you would like them to stay this length um or you know I mean I'm probably just gonna continue to do what I do and subject dependent, and you know, how much writing I do and how much research goes into it um, will typically reflect how long it is. So, um, like I said though, I am really surprised because I felt like I spent so much time at my computer, but maybe I was just like kind of like jaw dropped watching videos and stuff mostly and, and reading the articles. Um, cause a lot of it was like repeated information, but I found like every, every article that I found, there was like some little tidbit about something else that I didn't know. So yeah, thank you for journeying through the centuries with me in a flurry of magic and mystery. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. There is no short story for this episode, but next episode I'll have something nice and spooky for you here in the library that no one leaves.